you haven't asked, but um, I'm sure you've wondered what, what, what kind of conversation happens between the preacher and the service leader uh, back here just before the preaching of God's word. Well, the conversation that just happened just there, our brother Dennis asked me, what is your hope for this sermon? Uh, and I told him, my hope for this sermon is that God's people would be persuaded that he cares for them. That's what I'm going to proclaim to you this morning, that God cares for you. But it's my hope and prayer that the Spirit, as we look at God's divinely inspired Word, persuades you that God cares for you. Over the last several weeks, we've been learning from the ministry of the prophet Elisha. Elisha was the prophet who you may know, he succeeded Elijah. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 2, it was communicated that Elisha received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And after the prophet, prophet Elijah left the scene, Elisha has been engaging in this prophetic ministry that was really in some ways similar to Elijah's prophetic ministry. Like Elijah, Elisha has been providing for the needy and he's been raising the dead. And the purpose behind Elisha's miraculous ministry is this. Wonders confirm the authority of the word. In other words, part of the purpose of the miracles Elisha performs is to confirm that he authoritatively speaks on God's behalf. And if we were to step back and kind of boil it down, what we've really been learning about is, is God himself. Uh, we've been learning that, that God is faithful to his people and to his promises. First and Second Kings, the books that we've been studying for the last several months, they explain the division, the decline, and the destitution of, of the people of God. And what we've been seeing, particularly in the last several chapters, is that God is able to care for his reduced and remnant people. That's what we're going to continue to see today in Elisha's ongoing miraculous ministry. Though we're not yet in the exile, God is clearly revealing to himself that, look, I, I can be the God who cares for you in situations that are dark and difficult. I can care for you. That's what we're going to see here today. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 38. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, it's found on page 310. 310. And here's, here's what we need to understand how this text connects to us. It's, it's relevant to us and, and our lives today. The book of Kings was originally written to a people who were languishing in exile. That's who originally received this book. There were only a few faithful believers who remained. And what we learned from God's word this morning is that God cares for his people in the midst of their destitution and difficulty. God extends his purposes of grace even to wicked Gentiles. God warns us to be on guard against greed. And even, even when we have very little. And God is concerned about the mundane details of our lives. You see, the, the writers of the New Testament tell us that Christians, Christians are strangers and exiles. We find that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. So there's a, a sense in which we live somewhat parallel lives to those who first read and received the book of Kings. We, as Christians, are not in our homeland. And we're, we're often discouraged by the difficulties. We're, we're worried about the wicked. We're tempted to grasp for gold. And we doubt that God cares for the mundane details of our daily lives. Yet, just as God cared for His ancient people in exile, so we too receive God's care. That's the big idea from this passage this morning. Let's turn then and consider our first point we want to look at this morning. First point is this, feasting in famine. God can make his people feast in a famine. That's the title of the first point, feasting in famine. And here we see God extend his care to his people through a very physical means. So please follow along as I read from 2 Kings chapter 4 verse 38 through verse 44. Verse 38. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the fields to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing 
but they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, Then bring some flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no more harm in the pot. A man came from Baal, uh, from Baal Shalashish, uh, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give to, them, give to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, They shall eat and have some left. Set it before them, and they ate some they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord Yahweh. Well, as you can see right there in verse 1, a famine frames uh, the, the concerns of these two food episodes. During uh, this period of Israel's history, we must remember that uh, a famine was a sign of God's great ple- displeasure upon the people of Israel. In Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 28, Moses told the people of Israel... That if they disobeyed the law of God, if they went after other gods, that one of Yahweh's covenant curses, one of the the consequences of Israel's sin, would be that a famine would fall on the land. Sadly, as we've learned from 1 and 2 Kings, the people of Israel, led by her kings, have gone after idol worship. They've gone after the Baals. Uh, It's not by coincidence that the opening of the first scene is marked by a famine, and the opening of a, the second scene is marked by a man coming from Baal Shalashah. The author of Kings, he, he clearly wants uh, Israel's spiritual and physical state brought before our eyes in each of these scenes. And the two are connected. With the famine framing these scenes, we are meant to understand that God is justly disciplining His people for their sins. And yet... As we have learned from the book of Kings, God has also purposed to preserve a small but faithful remnant of His people. The the sons of the prophets were part of that small but faithful remnant. The sons of the prophets were, were either a group of believers who carefully attended to the teaching of the prophets, or they were themselves prophets who co labored with Elijah and Elisha. In fact, they, they may very well be kind of a mix of, of both prophets and common disciples who attended to the prophet's teaching. Whatever the case may be, in the first scene, you see there in verses 38 to 41, we see that God, through Elisha, is able to heal and preserve a pot, a spoiled pot of stew. Let's be clear, this is not a, uh, this is not a diatribe against vegetables. Uh, this does not prove that men should not cook. This is not a polemic against potluck. Uh, No, the the reason that we have this scene is to show us that God will preserve His people even under the curses of the covenant. God makes His presence and power known through the ministry of Elisha. He can work good from bad. He can make a deadly pot a source of life and sustenance. He can preserve a destitute people. God can overcome His people's errors and ignorance and sins. God can comfort His people in exile. And this is the message that those in exile needed to hear. And they needed to hear it twice. For the miracles uh, of verses 42 to 44 underscores this same idea. You see there, a man comes from Baal Shalashah bringing the the bread of the first fruits. Let's remember the context. This is happening when there's a famine in the land. This man is carrying 20 loaves of bread in a famine. 20 loaves of bread. Now, our our notion of... um, of bread may mislead us here. The, the loaves of bread that we pick up at the store are much bigger than the loaves that this man is, is carrying. He has 20 of them, yes, but that's not enough for the 100 men who need to eat, who need to be fed. There's another phrase that should actually catch our attention there in verse 42. Do you see it? This man is bringing the bread of the first fruits. Puzzle over that. Why, why is that significant? It's significant because ordinarily he would be bringing the bread to the wrong place. Uh, the bread of the first fruits, according to the law of Moses, was supposed to go to the priest, not to the prophet. Supposed to go to the priest of the prophet or, or the tabernacle, the temple. Um, but here, the, the bread of the first fruits is, is going to the prophet. What's going on here? Uh, it appears, I think, that this man judges that Israel's priesthood is corrupt and syncretistic. 
and that Elisha is the rightly authorized and recognized representative of Yahweh in Israel. Well, when that bread finally arrives, Elisha instructs his servant to set it before the men. His servant clearly recognizes there's not enough bread for these hundred men, but Elisha speaks the word of Yahweh, and these men eat. And what? They, they have some left over, don't they? Notice how verse 44 concludes. It concludes with these words, according to the word of the Lord. Right? Remember, wonders confirm the word. These verses clearly communicate that God can make his people feast in famine. They communicate that God can preserve his people in exile, but they also underscore the power of the word of the Lord, of Yahweh. For those in exile, this would be a subtle reminder and challenge to attend to the word of the Lord. They need to go back to the word of the Lord again and again to hear what it says again and again. And here we see Elisha confirmed as Yahweh's authorized spokesman. This is what we need to think about as we remember Jesus' miraculous ministry too. You remember the passage that we read earlier in the service. Jesus' miracles proved that He was the Messiah. They proved that He was God. Right Earlier in the service we read from, from Mark's Gospel, the feeding of the 5,000. And what happened after Jesus worked that miracle from five small loaves and two fish? Well, in the words of 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 44, they ate and they had some left. That miracle should have opened the eyes of their hearts to see that Jesus was divinely authorized. More than that, it should have revealed to them that Jesus was God in the flesh. For immediately after the miracle, he walked on water, invoking the name of Yahweh. But do you remember the reaction of the disciples? What was the disciples' reaction to Jesus? When Jesus, when God in the flesh got in the boat, with them, Mark said this in Mark chapter 6, verses 51 and 52. And he, that's Jesus, he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Mark is telling us that the disciples didn't understand that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was God in the flesh, that his miracles were proof, a, a declaration that he was who he said he was. Brothers and sisters, learn from this feasting in a famine. Learn from this. God, he met the needs of his people in destitution and difficulty. Those first reading kings would have been encouraged to believe that God could meet their needs in exile. Praise God, he has delivered us from a spiritual exile through Jesus Christ. He has given us the bread of heaven in his Son. The people of Israel needed to know that God was caring for them, comforting them, and challenging them, per preserving them in the midst of exile. But they also needed to know that God's grace was for their captors too. That's what we learn in the next scene. That God's grace is for Gentiles too. In fact, that's the title of our second point. God's grace is for Gentiles too. Begin reading with me uh, there in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord, Yahweh, had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. 
Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Pause there. As this scene unfolds, we learn that God has been giving victory to Israel's enemy, to Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria. Can you imagine how this would have insulted the pride, at some level, of, of Israelite readers? Right? What? <laughs> Yahweh gave victory to Syria? That's the funny thing about grace. It sometimes kind of frustrates our categories. That's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. Naaman didn't deserve to have Yahweh on his side. But then again, who does? This mighty man, though empowered by God for victory, is losing to leprosy. You see that in verse 2, we learn that in a roundabout way, we learn also some other information about Naaman. In a roundabout way, we see that Naaman has, has participated in kidnapping, in human trafficking, and slavery. Syria has raided Israel and they've stolen at least one little girl. And she has ended up as a slave in Naaman's household. Can God be gracious to a human trafficking, slave-owning enemy of Israel? Will you give God that permission? He doesn't need our permission. If you can believe it, God would use these wicked deeds... In his sovereignty, he would use these wicked deeds of Naaman and the Syrians, and he would use them, these warped circumstances, to actually save Naaman. You see, it's only because that that little girl was in Naaman's house that Naaman could come to know that there is a God in Israel who heals the sick. So I wonder, do you, do you see the, the courage, the character, and the faith of this little Israelite slave girl? There are some great heroes in the Bible, well-known and named heroes in the Bible, but perhaps we should add this little girl to our list. She could have kept her mouth shut, right? She, she could have kept her knowledge of God's mercy and grace and power towards sinners. She could have kept that all to herself. And who would blame her for not helping her slave owner? Who would blame her for not putting... Any effort into sustaining the life and well-being of this man. This is a little girl who's filled with compassion. Think of the courage she displayed in speaking up in the house of one of the most powerful men in all of Syria. What love she displayed in speaking up. She saw a man's body ravaged by the fall and she knew that her God could do something about it. Here she is letting love cover over a multitude of sins. Here she is seeking to bless a man who has bereaved her of her family. Here is a girl who wants God to be glorified in Naaman's life. What a lesson for ancient uh, Israelite readers in exile. Don't you think that this little girl's faith would have been instructive and challenging to them? Is not God saying at some level to his people in exile, Hey, have, have you thought about telling uh, your Gentile masters about my goodness and grace like this little slave girl did? Have you thought about trying to bless those who hold you captive by telling them about the true and living God? My grace is for them too. Tell them that I am the God who loves to save sinners. This little girl, she spoke up for God's glory. Will you? Do you realize she uttered two sentences she uttered two sentences that God used to save Naaman. Did you know that God can use just two sentences to save a sinner? Brothers and sisters, learn from this little girl. Children, youth, young adults, learn from this little girl. Let's tell those around us about the grace and mercy of our God. Have you thought about saying something like this little girl said? Whether you're young or old-er, whether you're young or old, have you thought about telling a classmate, a coworker, a neighbor, or a friend, oh, that you would come with me to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? The gospel is how God saves sinners 
come and hear this good news. This little girl spoke up for God's glory. Will you? And parents, think of what this little girl was drawing upon in order to share her knowledge of God. She was drawing on her memory of God's mighty and miraculous acts. Parents, I have a a confession. Too too often I think uh, that I enshrine in the minds of my children principles of godly living. And that's certainly part of my calling as a parent. But what this little girl teaches me is that I also need to enshrine in the minds of my children the mighty acts of God. His divine miracles, His wonders, His grace. We are to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we should also fill up their minds with God's mighty and miraculous acts of sovereign mercy so that they're ready to tell others that there is a God in heaven who can heal your heart. Amazingly, Naaman considers this little girl's counsel worth a try. What if your neighbor, what if your coworker, what if your classmate actually considered your counsel worth a try? Naaman, he must have been desperate, right? He must have been losing to leprosy and a warrior, he hates to lose, he has to win, right? Naaman gets permission from his boss, the king of Syria, to go into Israel in the hope of healing. And the king of Syria, he writes this letter to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel reacts in precisely the way that every red-blooded Israelite would have reacted. He hated the thought of helping his enemy, and truth be told, he's terribly afraid. He knows that he doesn't have the power to heal Naaman. He doesn't hold in his hands the power of life and death. And he thinks that Syria is sending their beloved general just just to pick a fight. I think that's what we should make of verses 6 and 7. Where the king of Israel is thrown back in fear and dread and unbelief, right? Because he should have known there's a prophet in Israel whom God has been pleased to do mighty deeds through. Where the the king of Israel is thrown back in fear and dread and unbelief, Elisha springs forward and he informs the king that this is what the true people of God want. The true people of God want all peoples to come to know that there is only one living and true God and that he is the God of Israel. No, the king does not have the power to heal, but God's authorized servant, Elisha, does. The king should have known that. Elisha effectively tells the king, don't close the door, send him to my door. And in verse 9, Naaman, he pulls up to Elisha's door. And now, as we read what happens next, remember that Naaman, he's coming with a lot of money. He's turning up with somewhere around 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold. He's turning up with a lot of money. And notice, notice his entourage in verse 9 and Elisha's message in verse 10. Verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Now just stop and take that in. Naaman turns up to Elisha's house with a gargantuan amount of gold, horses, chariots, and presumably servants. And Elisha doesn't even bother to come to the door. He sends a messenger. Right? He he no doubt heard them coming, right? These chariots must have been rumbling down the streets. He sends a servant to the door with a simple message. Go take a bath. In, in fact, take, take seven baths in the Jordan River. Now just think of how humiliating this could have been for Naaman. Right? Uh, have some sympathy, sympathy for this man in the situation. Here he's come all the way from Syria. He's come with an official letter from the king. He's come with all kinds of money, with his huge entourage. And they're there standing watching this humiliating dismissal by some guy's servant. A servant of a people that, you know, he's used to actually conquering in battle. And now pick up reading in verse 11. Verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord Yahweh his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better 
than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Pause. Angry. In a rage. Did you, did you see how self-centered Naaman was? Look, look at it, the language he used there. I thought that he would surely come out to me. That's the other thing about how God works. He works according to his plan and not ours. We have to submit our plans to his. Anger and rage emerges from a self-centered point of view. Anger is self-centeredness, frustrated by the fact that God or others do not bow down to your will and worship you. Let me just say that again because I need to hear it. And I suspect that some of you need to hear it too. Anger is self-centeredness. It's frustrated by the fact that God or others do not bow down to your will and worship you. When, when you and I get angry, we need to recognize that we have set ourselves up as gods to be worshipped according to our demands and our commands. But God's ways move us off the throne of worship. God's ways move us out of the center. Naaman got angry. And he started insulting the people and the land around him. He objects to the idea of washing in that dirty Jordan River. Take a bath. Don't, don't you think I've tried that? Perhaps he's something of an ethnocentrist. You can almost hear him muttering under his breath in verse 12. That Jordan River, that's ridiculous. The rivers back in my home country are better, cleaner, not to mention prettier. I get greeted by a servant and sit down to a dirty river. Who does this guy think he is? I'm going home. God's ways are foolish to the proud. God's ways overturn and work against our narrow-mindedness. God's ways press us toward humility. If Naaman is to be healed, he has to get under the command of a servant. If Naaman is to be healed, he has to get under the command of a servant. Ultimately, he has to get beneath the command of God. God's grace is mysterious, but it's not magical. Naaman thought that he would hand over some money and that Elisha would wave his hands over him and chant some religious-sounding command in the name of Yahweh and then abracadabra, he'd be healed. Maybe that's how sorcerers back in Syria did it, but that's not how Yahweh would do it. Yahweh has offered healing to Naaman through a simple, ordinary bath. We don't get to tell God how we want Him to work. He tells us how He works. And His works are perfect and all His ways are just. God's grace is mysterious, but it's not magical. God's grace is on His terms, not ours. God works through His divinely revealed means, not our human experience and our expectations. If you want God to heal you, to save you, you have to go through His revealed path of salvation. You have to go through His Son. Naaman, he's clearly angry. But how might we help angry people? Perhaps we can start with softly encouraging them to submit to God's Word. You see there in verse 13, Naaman's servants give a soft answer that helps turn away their commander's wrath. They encourage him to humbly submit to Yahweh's Word spoken through Elisha. Pick up reading there in verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is the, the thing that sometimes uh, we as angry people do not get. Submitting ourselves to God's word, to God's will and God's way, 
is actually the path out of anger and into healing and happiness. This bath has not only miraculously healed Naaman, but God was at work in the water. He made him new on the outside, but he also made him new on the inside. Look at Naaman's profession of faith there in verse 15. And here he finally talks to Elisha face to face. And as we read verses 15 to 19, to see, see if you can see how God has transformed Naaman's heart. Verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So now accept a present from your servant. But he said, this is Elisha, but he said, As the Lord Yahweh lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord Yahweh. In this matter, may the Lord Yahweh pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord Yahweh pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, that's Elisha, he said to him, go in peace. Now just pause there. I know we're stopping mid-verse, but pause there. Do you see what just happened? A, a Gentile got saved. He was healed on the outside, but God healed him on the inside too. He became a monotheist. More specifically, he became a worshiper of Yahweh. And did you notice the absence of pride and the presence of humility? He went from being identified as a, a man of great power and wealth and acting like a total dunderhead and then to calling himself a servant. Did you see that in the text? Look at verse at the end of verse 15. Accept now a present from your servant. And he does it four more times in verses 17 to 18. Five times, Naaman calls himself a servant. Do you see how grace saves and transforms? Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want you to know that like Naaman, God can spiritually heal you. God can save you, but you can't tell God how to do it. Salvation does not come on your terms. You've got to humble yourself before the Lord. He saves through the most unlikely means. Through His humble Son giving up His life as a sacrifice for sinners on the cross. It was only after Jesus went under the wrath of God for sinners that God the Father raised Him up from the dead three days later. And if you can believe it, the Scriptures teach us that it is His blood that makes us clean. In the words of an old Christian hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Friend, come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Believe that He lived for you and that He died for you and that He was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. Humble yourself before the Lord. Confess your need of healing from sin and wash in the mercy and grace of Jesus. Christian, before we move on, I wonder if you recognize that you are a servant. You are a servant in exile, like that little girl back in Naaman's house. We must ever remember our place. We must ever keep a, a humble posture. In God's kingdom, we're all servants. We're all servants of the one true King, Jesus Christ. Being mindful of our position and place as servants of Christ engenders within us a humility that brings glory to Jesus. And I think it sometimes reduces friction in our relationships with loved ones and neighbors and fellow believers. Humbly submitting ourselves to Christ's commands, serving at His pleasure, is also a guard against grasping for the things that God has not given. And that's what we see next in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 19 
to 27. Here's the title of our third point. Grasping for gold. Grasping for gold. Follow along as I, I read from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 19 to 27. I'm picking up there in the middle of the verse. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord Yahweh lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariots to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took from them their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariots to meet you? Was it time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. Now is this not a, a heartbreaking scene? Greed gets the better of Gehazi. And if we're honest... Greed can sometimes get the better of us. We, we can't look at every facet of this scene, but we, we do need to look at a few of the most important details. First, notice that the predatory nature of greed. Gehazi muses over what God has done for Naaman and begins to depersonalize Naaman. This is part of the predatory action. Uh, depersonalizing a, a victim, viewing them as an object or a barrier standing between you and your goal. In this case, it's Gehazi wants gold. In verse 20, he says, My master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian. I wonder if you can hear kind of the, the, the distance that Gehazi puts between himself and Naaman. Can you hear that kind of wall of hostility? Why, Why say this Naaman? There appears to be a, a bit of distance and disdain for Naaman. And why say the Syrian? So So what? If Naaman's a Syrian. God's grace is for Gentiles too. It's always been for Gentiles. That's part of the purpose of the, the Abrahamic covenant. That God's blessings would flow to the nations through the offspring of Abraham. If we rightly detected a bit of ethnocentrism in Naaman previous to his conversion. And I think we did rightly detect that. Then we should certainly detect a bit of ethnocentrism in Gehazi here. And beloved, let me tell you, there's no place for ethnocentrism in Christ's church. There is no place for even a hint of racial superiority in Christ's church. From the beginning, Jesus has purposed to bring people from every tongue and tribe and nation together for worship around His throne. We honor Jesus by honoring all those He has made in His image. Be on guard against the kind of disdain that's found in Gehazi. Now stick your nose in the text again and take a look at what Gehazi says at the end of verse 20. Gehazi says, I will run after him and get something from him. Gehazi is no longer viewing Naaman as a recipient of God's grace, but as a channel for gold. Gehazi no longer views Naaman as an image bearer spared of physical and eternal suffering, but now he is a means of satisfying his personal appetite for gold. So second, notice the interplay between greed and deceit. Gehazi lies, misrepresenting Elisha to Naaman. You see that in verse 22, Gehazi says, My master has sent me to say, No, he has not. 
No, he is not. Elisha has not sent you Gehazi. Gehazi lies. And notice where he directs his lie. It's to a grateful heart. Naaman has just been healed. He has given his life to Yahweh. And he is clearly happy to give up his gold if it will help one of the servants of his God. Gehazi plays into Naaman's good and godly desire to give out of gratitude, to be generous, to to meet the needs of God's people, and to further the ministry of mercy. Gehazi, he asks for a little, but Naaman gives more than a little. And Gehazi, he, he got his money. Brothers and sisters, there are are loads of deceitful and predatory preachers out there. Many of them have planes, trains, automobiles, and TV deals, right? And they will play into your good and godly desire to give out of gratitude, to be generous, to meet the needs of God's people, and to further the ministry of mercy. But do not be deceived. If they're on TV, they likely don't need your money. What is more... When they ask for your money in exchange for some work of God in your life, they are espousing the lie that Gehazi perpetrated upon Naaman. By asking Naaman for money, Gehazi is conflating, he's conflating, he's confusing what Elisha purposed to keep clear. God's grace is not connected with what we can give to God. God's grace is not connected with what we can give to God. Naaman came pounding on Elisha's door and with the assumption that he would be healed if he would give him some money. But Elisha said no to money. Elisha wanted to be clear that you can't buy God's favor. You, you, you can't buy God's healing. You can't buy God's grace. You can't buy it on the front end. You can't buy it on the back end. You can't buy it on the back end of salvation and healing. God's grace is not for sale. And now that Gehazi has made this request, the possibility for Naaman believing that lie, that God's grace is for sale, has exponentially increased. You see, Gehazi has not only misrepresented Elisha, he's misrepresented God. And we see what it cost him in verse 27. His sinful pursuit of wealth cost him his health. Elisha saw right through him, didn't he? So the conversation is almost reminiscent of the conversation with God and Adam in the garden. Elisha saw right through him. He had that divine spiritual insight to know what had happened. It was like when Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, looked at Judas and said, Go, and go, go and do what you must do and do it quickly. He knew what was in Judas's heart. Friends, brothers and sisters, let's, let's be challenged and sobered by this man. Think of how near he was to the ministry of Yahweh, mediated through Elisha. Think of how close he was to the regular, faithful, miraculous ministry of Elisha. And yet he disastrously misrepresented God's grace by his greed. Think of Judas. Think of how near he was to the ministry of Jesus. Think of how he heard Jesus preaching of the kingdom day in and day out. For years. Think about how he saw Jesus feed the 5,000 and raise the dead and more. And yet think of how Judas could not keep from seeking silver. Thankfully, Gehazi's end was better than Judas. Uh, Later we'll see Gehazi uh, testify of God's work through Elisha. Nevertheless, the consequences remain. Sometimes sin's consequences remain and extend on. He dreadfully misrepresented God and his purposes of grace on this occasion. And and think for a moment of what an Israelite in exile might learn from these verses. Perhaps he might learn that though his his situation is desperate, he must be on guard against greed. Perhaps he might learn that God's grace and glory are more important than gold. In a desperate situation, it would have been tempting to grasp for what God had not given. Under a prolonged trial like the exile, it could be easy to be discontent with God's portion and providence. But life is a vapor. According to James chapter 4, verse 14, life is a mist, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Remember that, Christian. Your life is short. Yes, it is hard. But it's also short. It's a lot like an exile. And that is why the temptation for sinful pursuits is enticing. But remember, you're, you're not here to build your own kingdom, but to build God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom. We're not here to, to use people to further our comfort. Don't obscure Jesus' grace by grasping for gold. Live in such a way that shows the world where your treasure really is. And to do that, you need to not merely submit to the, the place, the position and provision that God has given to you, but you need to delight in it, like our brother Jed was saying this morning. Whatever place, position, and provision God has given you, whether meager or mighty, you need to delight in God's generosity toward you. He is not a begrudging God. He is a bountiful God. We need to see and be persuaded that the only thing that we really deserve is hell. But He has in His kindness and grace given us His one and only most beloved Son. We have better than we deserve. Here's the challenge of 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 19 to 27. Don't grasp for gold, but glorify God for His grace. Finally, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, we see the ascension of an axe head. That's our fourth and final point, the ascension of an axe head. Read 2 Kings chapter 6, just verses 1 to 7. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. How on earth is this connected with what has gone before? Well, these verses serve as something of a bookend. If you'll recall the very first point of the sermon, especially in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 38, you can flip back and see there that we learned that Elisha has been extending God's care to a company of believers called the sons of the prophets. And who appears here in verses verse 1 of chapter 6, but none other than this company of believers called the sons of the prophets. Here we get the back end of, of kind of the bookend of God's care for this community. But this time, it's narrowed down to one man. See, God's care is not only for His people corporately, but it's also for His people personally. It's narrowed to one man. The, the sons of the prophets are working on a, a building project, but as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And notice what this faithful servant did. He did what the king of Israel failed to do when he was faced with a problem. He went to the one who could help. He went to Elisha, God's authorized messenger and miracle worker. When in trouble, go to the one who can help. Go to the Lord Jesus Christ. This story parallels Naaman's story uh, in another way, in that uh, Naaman had need of his disease being removed, and this faithful servant had need of his axe head being recovered. The needs are in different shapes and sizes. One is kind of big. It's at least as big as the body of a mighty warrior, and one is kind of small, maybe as small as a few pounds of iron, the size of a man's hand. No matter the shape and size of our needs, God cares for them. And that's because our God cares for us, personally. 
Why did God, through Elisha, make this axe head ascend to the top of the water? Have you thought about that? Why make this axe head come to the top of the water? Because this man needed to be persuaded of God's power and his personal concern for him. This is a distressing situation, and God loves to help his people, especially when they are in need and they call out to him. And there's another reason that God, through Elisha, made this axe head ascend to the top of the water. The man needed to get back to work. He had a dwelling place to build. And there's still another reason that God, through Elisha, made this axe head ascend to the top of the water. It was borrowed. And it needed to be returned. Are these, are these mundane reasons? Yes. Does that make this miracle mundane? No. Does God care about the mundane? Yes. Do you know why? Because He cares for His people. He cares for you. He cares for us. The size of our need is not the measure of God's interest. Have you thought about that? He cares about you when you lost your keys. The size of our need does not measure, is not the measure of God's interest. He's interested in the great and small of our lives. So, brothers and sisters, cast your cares on the Lord, for He cares for you. Cast your cares on the Lord, whether they are great or small. God, He will feed His people in a famine. He will bring grace to a man who is distant and far off from the gospel. He will warn us of the greedy tendencies of our hearts. And he loves to make what was once lost found. And as we conclude, we ought to turn our minds to Christ once more. Beloved, be be amazed by this floating axe head. But also be amazed by our Savior. Remember that Jesus, when he he fed the 5,000 people with the five loaves and the two fish, and and then after that, he he saw his disciples, they they were in this boat, and they were struggling against the wind. And so what did he do? He walked on water. What is an axe head floating on top of a water to a man walking on water? This is the God we serve, full of wonder, full of might, full of mercy, full of love. When Jesus saw his disciples struggling against the wind, when he saw their need, he walked on water. He climbed into the boat and he calmed their fears saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And as we in our exile, as the Apostle Peter said, as we wait for our King to come, Do not let your hearts be hardened. Remember the meaning of the loaves. Remember that our God is close. And remember that our God cares. Let's pray together.